I've begun uh, a preaching series through the book of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul in this book has to defend himself on many different fronts. False teachers had arrived in the city of Corinth. They were, as Paul will later say, teaching another Jesus, bringing another gospel, imparting another spirit than the ones you received. And so as these false teachers attacked Paul's theology, a lot of criticisms then about the one who had brought the gospel to them, about his preaching style, about the kind of decisions he made, the fact he always seemed to be in trouble, seemed to be in jail, he wasn't a very sparkling personality. I mean, they had all kinds of criticisms about him and beginning to say, is he really an apostle after all? And so in our text this morning, Paul starts, it's almost like in the book he's working through a whole list of complaints and attacks uh, that he experienced. And so he starts this morning uh, in, in our text defending himself on something that seems perhaps to us sort of foolish and non-essential. I'm going to read a lengthy text, 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 2, 4. I'm going to be focusing primarily on the opening verses of this text, but, but to get the whole paragraph, the whole context, I'm going to read it all, and we're going to be in this passage for three weeks. Uh, so, I, so I start with verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you can read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. And then the first four verses of chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer, from, suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. 
For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever had your motives misjudged? Have you ever had your actions misinterpreted? Have you ever faced unjust and unfounded criticism? Have you ever had people question your integrity? In the Apostle Paul's case, the answer is yes to all of those questions. And it wasn't people out in the world who were questioning his character, who were questioning his integrity. It was people in the church. It was some, not all, but it was some in the Corinthian congregation who were doing that sort of thing. And so Paul, in our passage, launches into a defense of his personal integrity, which will go over many chapters. But it's more than a defense just of him personally. It is a defense of him as a duly called and anointed by the Spirit of God, Apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is concerned to defend his integrity because he understands that when it comes to Christian ministry, everything depends on the integrity of the messenger. And you know stories, I I know stories of churches being wrecked because the pastor wasn't who he pretended to be. And because he was not a person of integrity, he destroyed the congregation. Paul understands that very well. and Because he understands that if the messenger is discredited, then the message that that person brings is also then discredited. And that is his chief concern. Now, the the issue in our text, what got all these Corinthians all stirred up, And by the way, they were already at odds with Paul because the false teachers had been there for a while. But what got them all stirred up was the fact that he changed his travel plans. Um, In their minds, some of them already were looking at Paul saying, he's unreliable, he's fickle. You can't trust what he says. And now when he had to change his travel plans, they seized on that, which seems to us like a really small thing to change your plane ticket. That's just another proof of you can't trust what he says. He says one thing, he says yes, then he says no, he's not reliable. And what I have observed over the years, personally, is that once an individual or a group of individuals has it in for somebody, you know, they've done something that offends or is misconstrued, then that person can do nothing right. Everything that person does is then put in the worst possible light, the worst uh, sort of motives ascribed to it. Well, there are other accusations against Paul, as as I said earlier, that we're going to discover as we work our way through this letter. But here is the issue of, of all things that got him all wound up, Paul changed his travel itinerary. Now, to get an understanding of what's going on here, we need to look at 1 Corinthians 16, where he announced his original travel plans. 
So in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul is taking an offering among all the Gentile churches in, uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere uh, for the poor Christians in Jerusalem and Judea who didn't even have enough food, not enough sustenance. And so he's taking up an offering that he's going to be sure makes its way to Jerusalem. And so he says at the first part of the week, uh, verse 2, uh, collect your offering every Sunday when you gather so I don't have to take a special offering for all of this when I show up. And then he says this in verse 3, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, he's not sure if it is or isn't, but if it's advisable, um, they will accompany me. I'll go with them uh, to Jerusalem. And then he says this, verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. By the way, that's where the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica, for example, were located. I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus, he says, until Pentecost. Here's a little map to make sense of it all. So as Paul writes this, he's in Ephesus, which is right over here on the coast. This is modern-day Turkey, the west coast of Turkey. So Paul is in Ephesus, and what he's going to do is cross over to Macedonia. Here's Macedonia up here. Here's Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. So he's going to go up the coast, going to cross over to Macedonia, and then what does he say? I'm going to head south to Corinth. So Corinth is right down here. So he's going to go from Ephesus to Macedonia, down to Corinth, and then he's going to take a boat to Judea, to Jerusalem, which is off the map to the southeast. So that was his travel plans that he announced in 1 Corinthians. But after writing 1 Corinthians, some bad things started happening in the church. The false teachers were there. False doctrine was taking hold. Uh, issues of morality and things were there. And so Paul had to make a rapid, unscheduled, and what he calls a painful visit. You notice that phrase in chapter 2, verse 1. The visit was not a pleasant one. And so he had to go to Corinth, and during his time in Corinth, he announced, I've got revised travel plans. And you notice in verses 15 and 16 of our text what those revised travel plans were. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Verse 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on to Judea. So here's Paul's uh, travel plan B. He's in Ephesus, and he says, rather than going all the way up around and down like this, I'm just going to take a boat across the Aegean Sea. I'm going to go right to Corinth, spend some time with you. Then I'm going to go to Macedonia. Then I'm going to make a second visit, come back to Corinth, and then I'm going to sail to Jerusalem. So that's travel plan B. But then after he left Corinth, he changed his plans again and reverted to a modified version of plan A. And he had good reason for doing that because, as our text makes clear, his emergency visit hadn't gone real well. Uh, the situation in the Corinthian church was it was everybody was on edge. Uh, it was, maybe you can say, even explosive. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, some kind of painful confrontation took place when he was there. 
He says in verse 2, the reason, chapter 2, verse 1, the reason why I'm not rushing right back is because I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. The last one was hard enough. And if I came back right away, I was afraid it would be yet another very painful, difficult visit. And verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul seems to be saying there was somebody in the church that was of particular uh, opposition to him. Somebody who was kind of the ringleader of Paul's opponents, and Paul seemingly had a face-to-face kind of showdown, if you will, with this individual. And there were those in the church who sided with this person, and there were others who just said, I don't want to get involved, and they stood on the sidelines, and they didn't support Paul at all. And so Paul says, those of you who should have made me glad didn't do so. Paul says in the opening verses of chapter 2. And so he makes this painful visit. He references it in chapter 2, verse 1. And he quickly leaves Corinth because the confrontation didn't go well. And he hopes to diffuse the situation to let things kind of cool down before he makes another visit. Because his visit had made things worse, is what had happened. And so he's apprehensive. If I follow these travel plans, what's going to happen if I rush back to Corinth again? What if I alienate the whole congregation by another visit when they're not ready for it? So, on that basis, Paul decides instead to write a letter. A letter which is now lost to history. But Paul references it in verse 4 of chapter 2. So, out of this painful visit... When he returned from Corinth, he says, verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, although as we shall see it caused great pain in the congregation, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. And so rather than making a visit, Paul writes a very pointed, seemingly very direct, um, very strong letter to the Corinthian congregation. And as we discover later in chapter 2, he sends Titus to hand deliver it. And so Titus goes to Corinth with the letter. And the agreement was, Paul says, I will wait for you in the city of Troas, which is right here. We'll discover that just in a little bit in 2 Corinthians. So he'd gone up from Ephesus to Troas. I'll do evangelistic work in Troas, and I'll wait for you, and here's the agreed on time when I expect you back to Troas, and you can tell me how the visit to Corinth went. How did they receive my letter? What was the response? And so Paul is in Troas and no Titus. He waits, still no Titus, and he imagines the worst, as I'm sure we all would do. Boy, it must be really bad. Things must not be going well. Or maybe something happened to Titus on the way back, God forbid. And so what Paul decided to do is, even though he said, I was going to meet Titus in Troas, I can't keep waiting here. My conscience is just in turmoil. I'm wondering how it's going in Corinth. What happened to Titus? And so Paul goes across to Macedonia and starts to head southward. And somewhere, Titus at that time begins to go northward. And somewhere they met up with one another. Uh, it doesn't, the scripture doesn't say where they met. And Titus gave his report to Paul. And we find the report, you have to wait till chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians to find the report. And it was positive. Thank the Lord it was positive. Most in the congregation had responded positively to his rather hard letter. And now that the situation was diffused, Now that there had been repentance, Paul now writes the book of 2 Corinthians in preparation for his final visit. 
But because Paul had changed his travel plans a couple times, there were still those in Corinth who saw that as marking his character as unreliable, lack of integrity. The idea was, if he's a spirit-filled Christian, doesn't the spirit tell him what to do? Doesn't the spirit guide him what to do? If he's changing it and then changing it and then changing it, obviously he's not spirit-filled. He may not even be a real apostle for all we know because if he were truly a spirit-filled, spirit-led Christian, he wouldn't be changing his travel plans like the way he's doing because God never changes. Paul does. God doesn't. So how does Paul address these unfounded charges directed against him? This questioning of his motives, the attacks on his integrity. I I want you to notice verse 12. For our boast is this. What is that boast? The testimony of our conscience. My conscience is clear. As I have thought about, prayed about, struggled with what's happened, I can say honestly before the Lord, my conscience is clear. I asked you at the beginning of the message if you've ever had your motives misjudged. I asked you at the beginning, have you ever had your actions misinterpreted? Have you ever faced what you regard as unjust, unfounded criticism? Have you ever had people question your integrity? Ever had people attack your character? When that happens to you, here's the point of this text. You need to begin where Paul does. You need to begin in openness before the Lord in the light of his word. To prayerfully ask, all right, Lord, is there anything in my life? Is there anything in my life that has transpired which has created the problem? Is there something that I've done that is contrary to your word? You see, you don't start with the other person. When somebody's attacking you and your character and your motive, you don't start with the other person. You start with yourself. I want you to see this theology real clearly in this text. To honestly come before the Lord and say, Lord, have I done something wrong? And to honestly ask that question, in all that's unfolded, is there anything that pricks my conscience about this whole matter? That's the place to start. And maybe you're in the right. Let's even grant, for sake of argument, you're in the right. But to honestly ask the Lord, don't just say, I'm in the right, so they're the problem. But to honestly, before the Lord, ask questions like, did I lash out in hostility and anger, for example? Did I say things that were cruel and destructive? Have I sought ways overtly or covertly to retaliate? Forget about what what Paul is saying here. Forget about what the other persons have said or done. That's not where you start. But Lord, what about me? That's where you start when you're under attack. That's when you start when your motives and integrity and actions are questioned or attacked. You start with, Lord, I need to examine myself first before I turn to what the other person is saying or doing. And if the Spirit of God, through the Word, reveals things that are wrong, you need to confess them, to repent of them, to clear your conscience, and yes, to make things right personally before moving ahead. 
So Paul begins in verse 12 by, well, how does he put it? Our boast is this, that our conscience is clear. You read that and you say, I thought boasting was a sin. Pretty sure the Bible says it is. Well, if by boasting we mean kind of an, uh, an arrogant, bragging, gloating, showing off kind of spirit, yes, then it is sin. Uh, if we boast like the Pharisee in the temple, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people, I'm so much better than everybody else. Okay, that kind of boasting is a sin. The scripture is very clear on that. But boasting is not always wrong. What makes boasting a sin is the basis for boasting. And what we see in our text, and Paul will boast later on in this letter as well, he'll use that word, is that Paul's boasting is a godly boasting in line with what Jeremiah writes in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Notice these words. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so Paul says, before God, My conscience is clear, and Paul says, the way that I behave, you notice in verse 12, whether it is with the Corinthians, whether it's with all of you, or whether it's out in the world, Paul says, I act in holiness and godly sincerity. Paul says, particularly, supremely toward you. So that should be true in this this room here. Of all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should interact with one another in a spirit of simplicity, of holiness, of godly sincerity, of integrity. But we don't leave it here. When we're out in the world, the same sort of thing should characterize us Monday through Saturday as we're out in the world. And so Paul says here, All things take place with openness, with transparency. I don't make my plans. I don't conduct my life according to worldly wisdom. I don't allow expediency to govern my actions. In regard to this issue of changing my travel plans, Paul says, it wasn't for selfish purposes. There was no hidden motive that was there. I wasn't trying to take advantage of you in some way. You need to understand that my conscience is clear in all of those things. Let me ask you, how do you conduct your life out in the world? I remember uh, my father-in-law on a couple of occasions telling me, after having had some negative experiences, he said, I would much rather do business with a non-Christian than with a Christian because he's had some bad experiences. There was a couple in uh, the first church I pastored. They had been uh, converted uh, later in life. And as they were sharing with me uh, one day their testimony as I was visiting them in their home, they said, what kept us away from Christ for so long was professing Christians whose actions didn't back up their words, and it turned us away from the gospel. When you don't live a life in the world marked by holiness and godly sincerity, a life marked by openness and integrity, you not only harm your own witness, which you indeed do, but you harm the church that you're a part of. If you live your life during the week and it's not in holiness and godly sincerity, you harm Grace Lutheran Brethren Church. Understand that. 
Understand that clearly. You harm the gospel of Christ. So you do something in the community and people say, oh, that person's part of grace. They're that holier-than-thou bunch group. They're those kind of people. Yeah, that's typical of them. You know how that goes, don't you? Especially in a smaller community. So I'm not going to listen to anything they say about God or Jesus or the Bible or salvation. It turns them away. Paul says the importance of, yes, supremely toward one another, but also out in the world, the apostle says. And so he boasts, he says, my conscience is clear, whether it's within the confines of the local congregation or whether it's out in town, I seek to act consistently with holiness and sincerity. And here's the key. Don't miss it in verse 12. All of it is by the grace of God. It's not because he's better than most of us. By the grace of God, surrendering to the Lord, surrendering to the work of the Holy Spirit, that's why I live in holiness and godly sincerity only because of and by God's grace. That has enabled me to live my life as I do. What did Jeremiah say? Therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it pains him now as he writes in these opening words of 2 Corinthians that the Corinthians, of all people, are questioning his character, questioning his motives. Because you think about the Corinthians had more opportunity than virtually any other church that he founded to spend time with Paul. Acts chapter 18 says when he founded the church in Corinth, he spent a year and a half with them. That's a long time. Most of the others, it was for a handful of weeks or several months. So they had an opportunity for him to live among them for a year and a half before he moved on. They know him best of all, and now they're questioning him, his character, his integrity. What did you see when I was with you? Is in essence what, what Paul is saying. My actions are motivated, he says, by the grace of God. There's no scheming, there's no calculation, there are no hidden agendas. My conscience in all of these things is clear. And then verse 13, Paul gives evidence of his assertion. Notice verse 13 begins with the word for. For, because we are not writing to you anything other than what you can read and understand. Just look at the letters I've written to you, Paul says. There are no hidden meanings. You don't have to read between the lines to try to figure out what I'm really trying to say. I write in straightforward language. I say yes, I say no. It's right there on the surface. I mean what I write. You can easily understand what you read in my letters to you. Now, interestingly, verse 14, he says, just as you did partially understand. What does that mean? we're going to discover that the Corinthians didn't understand what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Paul is imprisoned. He is persecuted. uh, He lives in poverty. He picks up his cross and follows Jesus. They're looking for a health and wealth triumphalistic Christianity. And Paul says, you don't get yet what it is to live as a Christian. You don't understand my way of life yet. You don't fully understand me. I trust that you will as time goes on, he says. I trust that you will come to understand me. So rather than being ashamed of me, of my afflictions, of my weaknesses, rather than being ashamed of the fact like he's always in jail, what's the matter with him? He's always being persecuted. Rather than being put off because I'm not a flashy personality, because I don't have this sparkling wit or whatever it is like the false teachers do, I want you to get beyond that and see my life marked by the cross. 
is what Paul says. And you notice what he says in the end of verse 14. He says, I trust on the last day. Notice what he says. On the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, that on that day you will boast of us as we boast of you. They're not there yet. And Paul hopes they don't have to wait till they stand before Jesus on the last day. But Paul says, when that day of our Lord Jesus Christ comes, I want to be able to say with justifiable pride, here is my church. Here are the Corinthians. Here are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And for you to be able to say, and Lord, here is our beloved apostle Paul who founded the church and discipled us in the faith. Paul says we're not there yet. But I want, before we get to that day of Jesus Christ, for that to be so for each of us. Well, in, in, in closing, let me just briefly admonish you this way. And that is simply this, that as members and attenders of this church, that you constantly strive to establish or reestablish a clear relationship with each person if it's not what it should be. I know what happens. Something happens, it may not be a huge, explosive kind of thing, but there's a separation for one reason or another, and you see the person on a Sunday and uh, just steer out the other aisle maybe or whatever it is. I'm just going to leave well enough alone, you tell yourself. That's disaster. Because your heart isn't right. And not only that, but here's what I found, is that if misunderstanding and alienation and broken relationships and hard feelings are still in the heart. Yeah, I'm just going to live, just going to leave it alone. If they are still there, then when something happens, and all it takes is something small, like in the case of Paul changing his travel plans, which is a really small thing. All it takes then is something small when things aren't resolved. It just takes something small, and all that stuff that's on the inside bursts into a forest fire. Where did that come from? Well, it was there all along. It was never dealt with. And then there's strife and there's division and there's polarization and new hard feelings and anger and hurt and pain, maybe even destruction. And so my admonition to you this morning is, is your conscience in these matters of interpersonal sorts of things, is your conscience clear before God to honestly ask that question and the second question I want to ask you to ask yourself is is my life in the congregation and out in the community marked by godly simplicity holiness sincerity and integrity so when I do whatever I'm going to do on Monday what will my life look like what will people who don't really trust the Lord, what will they think about me? What will they say about me? Can I say that my conscience is clear and that whether it's in the church or in the world, I behave with holiness and godly sincerity? And above all else, the question always to ask is those things that I do individually, those things that we do collectively, is it truly always for the glory of God and for God alone because that indeed is the chief end of all life in this world.
Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, when uh, we read those psalms this morning about the righteous man being persecuted and hounded and then even being mocked, so where is your God in the middle of all of this? Lord, when we face those kinds of things in our lives, the easy thing to do is to say, I'm not the problem, he is, she is, they are become bitter and hard and antagonistic. Lord, may we begin where Paul begins. Lord, search my heart. Is there something that I have done to add to the circumstances in a negative way? Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And then, Lord, if you bring to the mind of any one of us a person or persons that mm, we're alienated from, Maybe not in a blatant, hostile, openly hostile way, but there's something there that's never really been settled. Lord, may that person, by the prompting of your spirit, take the initiative to make things right for the glory of your name. Lord, we here, as part of this church, we are frail and failing and weak and sinful in more ways than we understand. So it is in every congregation. But Lord, may we surrender to you. May we, by your grace, by the power of your spirit, endeavor to lead a life that is a witness and a testimony to you, that doesn't detract from, that doesn't turn people away from your glory and grace and love and mercy in Christ. Lord, Lord make us, through your spirit, the kinds of people that you have designed us to be. We ask this for Jesus' sake.